Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year! That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time-boxing, single-tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So emotional outsourcing is when we chronically and habitually source our sense of worth, wellness, and value from everyone and everything outside of ourselves instead of from within. Hello, and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, we're going to jump right in with episode 139, in which I interview Maria Victoria Albina. Maria Victoria is a functional medicine nurse practitioner, a somatic master life coach, and the host of the popular feminist wellness podcast. She describes her narrative as the typical kid with ADHD story. As a child, she was always in the gifted and talented program, but always getting in trouble because of quote unquote behavioral issues. It wasn't until she was falling behind in grad school that she was diagnosed with ADHD, and like so many others, she finally understood her non-linear thinking habits. We talk all about her winding career path from midwife to herbalist to nurse practitioner to somatic life coach and meditation guide. And we also discuss somatic practices and how they can support ADHD adults when it comes to regulating our nervous systems and reconnecting with our intuition. Maria Victoria taught me all sorts of new terms, including emotional outsourcing and people proving. I know you will love her insight and her soothing voice as much as I did. Enjoy. All right. Oh, Maria Victoria. I'm so, I know I say this every week, but I'm so excited. I have so many questions. (laughs) And I love the work you're doing. And I feel like your, all of the work that you're doing just reads, it's so ADHD, right? With like all of these certifications and all of the stuff, like this patchwork of knowledge and experience that we bring to our work. And you're like, how do I include it all? And how do I get it all out there? And I love because it's just dizzying. And I think it's fantastic. So let's start where I always like to start, which is when you were diagnosed with ADHD. So I believe you it was in grad school, right? Yeah, I just realized. So I went to Oberlin undergrad. So like we studied, but like we didn't like grad school study. Do you know what I'm talking <laughs> yes. about? And like maybe the kids in the science department are like math or whatever. But I st- Latin American studies and studio art. I didn't like. <laughs> you, you're picking up what Mama's putting down here, right? Like I'm gonna go make a silk screen about a dictatorship. Like, and then I got to grad school and people did this thing. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's called sitting still for hours. Okay. I, exactly. That's the face I made too of like, what in the what? And I was working in the student health center and I like casually said to one of the NPs, like, 
I'm very confused by how like all these people can just study stuff they're not interested in. Right. But like my psychology class, I was like getting an A plus. I was always I was like, boom, 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 like hyper focus because but like physics, chemistry, what? How? How? And so I said this to her. She was like, yeah, you know, that's like a that's like a thing. Right. And I was like, wait, what's a what? And she's like, I've been kind of watching you the last couple months. You've been here working, right? And like, as we give you different tasks, you're like hyper-focused or wait, what? And I think you should maybe see the school psychologist and just like, I don't know, casually find out if maybe you have an ADHD. And I was like, is that an STM? No, I knew what it was because we all knew what it was. But like, but I'm from the time before it was a thing also. You know what I mean? Well, I've always said I was like, I was kind of insulted when my therapist suggested it to me because I was like, really? You think that low? Like, I I had such a preconception and stigma around what it was that I thought she was essentially telling me that you are a screw up, right? Like, it was that was sort of how I viewed it. And so my first reaction was always to be sort of like, really? You think that poorly of me? And now I'm like, ADHD, yeah, woohoo, (laughs) champion. No, I get that. I mean, I think for me, it was like, maybe it's not me, maybe it's my brain. Like there was like a wee glimmer of hope in it while, yeah, definitely feeling pejorative and definitely feeling shitty and like, oh, you really think I just, my brain's broken. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But that was a lousy feeling actually. Like when I zoom back to it. It's like you've recognized, I think this is actually pretty topical too around codependency, right, which I want to talk about later, but this idea that it's like, you've seen past my mask, right? You've seen past this facade that I work for, and you've recognized something in me that I've been trying to work, you know, work past and trying to hide, right? And so that does feel really vulnerable. Really vulnerable and is like scary in this almost existential threat way, because it's like, well, if you saw through it, who else saw through it? And like, Am I like the emperor has no clothes now? Like I am fully decloaked here. Yeah. Yeah. So she suggested you look into it. And then what happened next? I'm a Leo and I'm a like either get it done or completely forget about it forever and put it in a doom box kind of gal. So I marched upstairs and knocked on the psychologist's door. I was like, hi. So do you think I have an ADHD? And she was like, why don't you sit down? I like how you say it like it is an STD. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I think I caught an ADHD. I caught an ADHD. Maybe. I mean, you know how grad school is. You're in your 20s. You're feeling a little loose. You're in multiple study groups. And uh, <laughs> I feel like it was like 600 hours of testing, but am I making that up? I remember sitting in her office and feeling incredibly uncomfortable. God, brains are amazing. I remember it was hot and like my legs in short sticking to her couch. Like there was like a leatherette chair, but I don't remember the middle of it. I know, right? It is fascinating. Fascinating. Um, I always, I always say that about books too, where I'm like, I, I cannot tell you anything about a book I've read, but I can tell you if I liked it. I can tell you when I read it. I, you know, there's like all of these ancillary facts I can tell you, but don't ask me about the plot. Sure. Yeah. Who needs plots? Uh, it's so funny. You know, I, I went to a school, I went to a university in uh, Ontario that was known for pre-med, right? So all the students on my floor in my dorm were all like doing orgo and they were all like serious students. And I was the only person on my floor who was in the humanities. And I was always the one who was like ready to party at the drop of a hat where it was like at the drop of any kind of hat. I know. Right. And so I look back now and I'm like, the signs were there all along. But I often, like you said, like I had this vague sense that maybe I had a learning disorder, but also I also very much fell into that trap of like, I could be working harder. Like I need to be working harder like these people. And if I did do that, I would be doing better. And so like, oh, you know, that narrative of just like, it's my own fault. I've done this to myself. I I should be working harder. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear that more in these entrepreneur days than in the school days because I was very eager to please in the school days. So I think we can zoom back around to codependency in a hot second, but it was really the people proving and people pleasing that led me to 
sort of push through my brain in a way in order to show up for school mostly. Yeah. You know, I remember having a conversation about school uh, on a previous podcast where we were talking about how it's like you can do one thing or the other. And so like my first year, I was the social butterfly. I socialized and I did terribly in school because my focus was on socializing. And then when I I dropped out and I came back and I thought, okay, now I really, really want to do well. And that became my hyper focus. And so I couldn't socialize. I couldn't have friends. All I could do was study. And it was really like I couldn't balance. I think that was the thing was I always looked around at everybody else who was able to do all of these things with a sense of balance. And I was like, no, I can, I have chosen to be the the work, like the studier now and everything else had to fall by the wayside and how it's like, we have this sort of inability to kind of have healthy balance in our life. <laughs> and I saw, I see those patterns a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's some realness for sure. And I think, I think I was often really bored in school you know, and I think that's part of what made it really challenging was that like my brain was just whizzing ahead of what we were doing. And I wasn't, I didn't have the space, the capacity in my nervous system to hold that energy. Mm -hmm. And so it would just come out as being futzy and just, you know, yeah, which I think is all too common for us. So now when you were diagnosed, what were some of the things looking back at like your younger life where you felt like, oh, the signs were there all along? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, the feeling like I couldn't sit still, like I just like even right now, my my leg is twitching, like I'm shaking my desk, right? Like just feeling like I always that like tactile, like I always needed something sensory to be doing with my paws. And I can definitely look back and there were subjects where I absolutely excelled because I was hyper-focused and hyper-focusable. And there are subjects where I just didn't care. And so I focusing seemed actually literally impossible because I just, there was no, there was just no way to convince my brain that it was, it was worth paying attention to stuff that I don't care about because, and and now we know why, right? Yeah. And I definitely felt shame and guilt for that. And like, I should be, right? You mentioned all those shoulds. Like, I should be able to like all the other girls. Oh, and then, you know, this huge one that that plagued me in my 20s. I remember thinking about all the women I, or the girls, right? Or the kids that I grew up with. And I, I was in a program that was K through 12, and so a whole bunch of us in the like can you, the gifted and talented program. Side note, how effed up that it was called gifted and talented. I was like, what were the other kids? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. what is this dichotomy? What is this binary? Some of you are gifted and talented, and some of you are like scumbags. Like, what is this? But anyway, <laughs> I don't think they use that language anymore. It's hurtful. Point being, I would look at these kids that I'd like known since. 1984. And they had like one, like a singular passion, right? Like the one girl who like, uh, there was a program in my town at the local university where you could at Brown, where you could apply as a high school student to med school. And so you would do four years of undergrad and then four years of med school, like at Brown and several kids from my pro from my high school went to that. And I remember thinking like, how on earth do you just have one passion? How on earth do you just have like the one thing you want to do? And how do you feel so secure in knowing who you are and what you want to do? And that's been my whole career. Like you, you very kindly called it a patchwork. I kind of loved that. But my career has been circuitous as the word I've used. Um, I've done the very ADHD bounce around, right? Of like, this is exciting and this is fun for three to five years. And then this is exciting and this is fun, right? And I have definitely problematized that in my day and thought like, oh, Maria Victoria, can't you just have one thing? But like, no, I can't. And now that's okay, right? And like, now that's 
part of my superpower. I was going to say, now I view that. I, I always talk about my drawer of discarded uh, boxes of business cards. Oh yes! Yes! You know, I would order business cards for new business and hand out two or three of them. And then it's still there because I was onto a new business. And I used to always look at that in, like this drawer of failure of all of these businesses I had started that never went anywhere. And now I'm just sort of like, no, I mean, they're um, this amazing perspective that we bring, like one of our one of our biggest talents is be, to be able to pivot and bring in so many points of view to one single situation, uh, which I think is so beneficial in so many fields that you see us in a lot of the time or that seem to be like very well populated by people with ADHD. Yeah, yeah. And I think our being multi-passionate is really dope. And I think it's inspiring how multi-passionate we can be and how excited we can be and yeah, just how much we can create in one little lifetime because our brains are so malleable and flexible and are, are willing to go with it in a different way, I think, than our non-ADHD counterparts. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one -on -one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, it's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Well, you know, and it's funny because I feel like the medical field, stay with me for a second here. Okay. I feel like the medical <laughs> field is so siloed in a lot of ways, right? When seeing specialists. And so one of the things that I think is so incredible is how holistic our approach often needs to be when it comes to wellness. And, and it bothers me when I go to specialists who are just like, not even willing to listen to how my teeth grinding might be affecting my gait, right? Or like all of these ways in which um, our bodies are this whole being. And so, um, so now I'm curious as a nurse practitioner, having that background, how did you end up focusing on, on codependency and relational issues? See what I did with that? I love that. That was, that was <laughs> actually, that was superlative. <laughs> so just a medal will be arriving at your house within the hour. Uh, well done. Yeah, it is. It's from that holistic lens. So I, you know, I was a birth doula first. I was an herbalist first. I, I come from a line of green witches. It was really from seeing the holistic side first that I came into Western medicine. And so when I was sitting with patients, I had a, I worked in primary care for many, many years and then have a, a private practice in Manhattan. And 
you know, another brilliant part of our ADHD brains is pattern recognition. We are champion level pattern recognizers. Thank you very much. Right? In my epidemiology classes, oof, Captain ADHD is here to find the answers, save the day, fix it all. And I just, I remember just looking at patient after patient and, you know, all these women, I was a functional medicine gastroenterology specialist and these women who had these chronic GI symptoms and day after day, what I was really hearing under it all was mindset. And what was under the mindset was nervous system. And what was under the nervous system and, and sort of concurrent with was this story that has become my definition of codependent perfectionist and people-pleasing thinking, which I call emotional outsourcing. So emotional outsourcing is when we chronically and habitually source our sense of worth, wellness, and value from everyone and everything outside of ourselves instead of from within. And so it means we're constantly looking to others to prove that it's okay for us to be alive, to breathe, to, to be a human on the planet, that we are worthy of love, we're worthy of care. And so we're constantly working to prove our lovability. We're constantly tap dancing for our proverbial supper because we are so scared that we don't matter. So we take everything personally, we get defensive, we, we seek to people please and people prove which is when we get all the degrees and the certificates and the right promotions and the et cetera to try to garner people's approval of us. And we do all of that from this deep core wounding. And so I started to really see these stories as the thing underlying all the symptoms, right? All the fatigue, all the adrenal issues, all the thyroid issues, all the gut issues, the constant migraines, the ba 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 When we look at the science of the nervous system, that's concurrent with not being in ventral vagal, the safe and social part of the nervous system as your steady state. It's concurrent with your nervous system being dysregulated, right? And so from my point of view and, and my values, it was unethical to keep handing out supplements and prescriptions for what's really a mindset and nervous system issue, which doesn't mean that my colleagues who are writing prescriptions for compounded thyroid are doing anything wrong. We need them, but it's not my calling on this planet. As the pattern recognizing super machine my ADHD brain is, I am of most service on this planet by helping people to see the flaws in their thinking. And when I say flaws, I mean the thing that is ouchy, right? Not a good, bad, but like what is hurting you in your thinking and how is that jacking your nervous system and how is your jacked nervous system leading you to stay in these same thoughts? that keep you in codependent, perfectionist, and people-pleasing experiences of life. Experiences which, uh, to quote many a scientific study, really suck. Whew, yeah. Thank you. Reach. That's a mouthful, right? Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> great. I do need a nap. <laughs> um, no, well, it's something, I, I feel like it's a theme that gets talked about a lot on the podcast. I certainly am fascinated by it and talk a lot about it in terms of the like, the small T traumas that we experience growing up undiagnosed and even even diagnosed, right? The, because there is so, so much stigma and expectation in terms of fitting in and how so many of us tend to use anxiety, rely on anxiety as a motivator. But many of us also, like you, like you said, I love the term people proving, right? It really, I haven't heard that one before, but it's like it falls under that same umbrella of perfectionism and masking and people pleasing and really what that or body dysmorphia, like all of this falls under this umbrella of this desire to control how we are perceived. And so for me, like when I think about that and how much we try to feel like if I can just be the puppet master and make sure everybody is happy and everybody is seeing what I'm trying to show them, that is a trauma response as far as I'm concerned. Like that is hypervigilance, making sure everybody else is okay before we make sure we're okay. And I think that a lot of that comes from that denial, that constant denial of like who we are, who our essence is as a neurodivergent brain, that it's like, oh, I, you know, we stop listening to our intuition, we stop trusting our guts, and we start outsourcing our knowledge even, right? It, it, as well as emotion. And, and we outsource our worth, we outsource our value, and we end up, like you said, like physically ill. And most of the time we end up burnt out too. 
You know, and it's funny because there was this really controversial Washington Post piece recently. I don't know if you saw it, where the headline, the article itself didn't address this, but the headline, which was probably a very poor choice, said ADHD is an illness. And it was talking about, you know, the article, the crux of the uh, opinion piece was basically like ADHD needs to be taken seriously by the medical profession, right? It's We need to stop gaslighting people with ADHD. And so we need to take it seriously. And so it was sort of labeled as an illness. And all these people were, there was all this backlash because it's like ADHD isn't an illness. ADHD is a neurodivergence. And it wasn't even toxic positivity so much as people feeling, I think, very threatened by that term illness. And I had shared the article on my Instagram stories and I was getting some pushback about how dare you But at the end of the day, I sort of felt like, yes, the the wording is not great, but it speaks to the illness, you know, as opposed to the not wellness (laughs) of how we are treating ADHD, how we are thinking about ADHD and how it is being dismissed so widespread in terms of the the medical community. Right. It's interesting. It it makes me think of how often what is lumped in as part of like the diagnostic pathologizing criteria is actually a healthy response to an effed up system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's the term disability too, right? Which is like, is it a disability or is it just, you know, things are only a disability if you don't have the accessibility aspect, right? So being in a wheelchair is only a disability when there are no wheelchair ramps. Um, if you live in a society that accommodates, it's no longer a disability. And so I was sort of thought they were coming at that in terms of the term illness, but I don't know. <laughs> there ended up being a, a clarification a couple days later that I think ended up being worse than the original. But oh, no. um, anyway, it was it's just one of the topics that we talk about a lot, which is, you know, is this a superpower? Is this a disorder? Is this, you know, a disability? All of those questions in terms of what is the most helpful approach to managing and living with ADHD. Right. Well, and I think that is as variable as anything else, right? Particularly when we're talking diagnostic criteria, right? So if you have ADHD and get all the support and care you need as a kiddo and learn all the tools, how does it turn out in your life versus like not getting diagnosed until you're in your 20s and going and seeking it yourself and like, right? Like how does that shape your experience? I'll also say that one of the things that has let me say this carefully. I w- wanted to say helped with my ADHD, but that is pathologizing, isn't it? One of the things that has helped me to regulate my experience of ADHD. I like that. That doesn't feel pathologizing, right? It's regulating, not controlling, not blaming, not just, right? I call it surfing. I'm like, I'm not swimming upstream. I'm just surfing my ADHD. I love that. <laughs> I love that. That's so good. It also had this like Buddhist quality to it, right? Where it's like just surfing along. Oh, I like that. Okay, cool, cool. Um, So yeah, regulating my nervous system has been the most important thing. Because when your nervous system is dysregulated and you are reacting to life from a dysregulated nervous system, good luck focusing where on anything other than what your brain wants to hyper-focus on, right? Good luck doing the activities of daily living. Good luck living the life you want to live and not blowing up your relationships, right? Because there's also that angle, that aspect of the ADHD, like blurting out the thing that's kind of mean, but you didn't really mean to be mean, but you just blurted at it. And they think I'm mean. And am I mean? Do I not care about these people? Right? Like, I well, and that's the thing, you know, with so many of us, prior to our ADHD diagnosis, uh, are diagnosed with depression or depression and anxiety. And I've often questioned, because, you know, I, I don't think I would go so far as to say I was never depressed, but I often feel like the depression came from that feeling of what's wrong with me, right? I was, and and the feeling of what's wrong with me comes from not understanding dysregulation. It's not a term I ever heard. It's not a term I thought about. It wasn't something I paid attention to, but really at the end of the day, I would have, you know, rage against my kids because I was overstimulated and I didn't know why. Or I would yell at, you know, my husband was walking on eggshells because I didn't know, you know, why I was so angry. And all of that came from dysregulation. But the depression came from me feeling like a bad mom, feeling like a bad partner, wondering what's wrong with me and not being able to, like, fix who I was. And so that's why I'm like, you know, it really knowledge is such power when it comes to being in a regulated state versus a dysregulated state. Those are terms I use 
all the time now in such a hilarious way. And yet never in a million years did I think I was overstimulated. Did I ever think I had any kind of regulation issues? So yes, I think it's so like, why aren't we teaching that in school? I don't know. I mean, I'm going to tell you that I use sine waves and cosines constantly. Oh, wait. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) What? Right? Let me just pull out my Texas Instruments calculator for you. (laughs) Oh, my God. I love that thing. And mostly what we used it for was writing hello backwards. Right? Or boobless. (laughs) Or boobs. Or boobless. Uh Uh-huh. 80085. I mean, that is just the key. Boobs. (laughs) But uh, yeah, we really should be, all the children's should be learning this. And I think what's really problem, what's really challenging is we live in such a, in the US, in such a dysregulated society, right? The milieu is so dysregulated, uh, writ large, that it's really challenging. I, well, I think there's also a lot of virtue in like pushing through, right? Like I think our culture talks about this idea of uh, pushing past your comfort zone and, and it's virtuous to work 80 hours a week. And, you know, all of these ways in which we push ourselves so hard to the point of burnout, that's kind of that, that shows that we're passionate or that shows that we care about people. It's just so messed up. Right. Well, it's a system that, that prioritizes capitalism, right. And white settler colonialist frameworks, patriarchal frameworks instead of human frameworks. Right. And I think that's, again, you know, that framework for living these systems of oppression, when that meets someone who was raised in an environment that primed them for being an emotional outsourcer, that is the creates that morass in which there is no true self-care. Everyone else is ahead of us. Our worth is is in minute to minute, moment to moment question based on like, did someone look at me funny? Did my boss really like my project? Right? There's there's this constant questioning of our value. And then you add being a neurodivergent magical superpowered ADHD or to it. And it really is, it becomes quite the tailspin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is why I feel like I'm always asking those questions where I'm like, is this ADHD or am I an angry feminist living in post-Trump America? And and like all of these ways in which I'm like, I'm just fed up with all of this. Or is it ADHD that's causing my perfectionism and my masking and all of that? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Actually, I want to get back to codependency, too, because I feel like another misdiagnosis that I see a lot is borderline personality disorder. Um, And sort of that feels very much like that emotional outsourcing, right? Is that such a great term? Oh, thank you. I trademarked it. Did you really? Good for you. I really did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very, I'm very proud of it. No, it's true, right? Which is really just that idea of like how we kind of lose a sense of ourself and our inner wisdom and we attach ourselves, right, to other people. We don't like to be in the driver's seat sometimes, when, especially when it comes to emotions. Or we go hyper-independent, which people don't think of as a kind of emotional outsourcing, right? People don't think that that's in its way, codependent. But when we're hyper-independent, what we're saying is, I have this deep belief that I am responsible for managing other people's feelings and their lived experience. And I don't think that I'm up for it. I don't have the skills to manage your emotions, though I'm going to try. And so if I don't ask for help, don't ask for support, don't receive love, don't receive care, I'm just fine. I'm fine. I'm cool. I'm fine. No, don't worry about me. I'm cool. I'm fine. All the time which I think is part of the ADHD masking, right, can look like that, then I won't have to manage anyone else's emotions if they're disappointed, if they're upset, if they don't want to help, if they give from obligation, right? Their experience is inherently my problem. So if I don't engage with them, then there's one less problem, right? 
I'm fine. I'm exhausted. I'm on the verge of burnout. I cry myself to sleep every night, but I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. I'm cool. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I'm really smart. It's okay. I'm, I got it. Don't <gasps> worry. Yeah. Oh, my God. I feel like everybody listening to this is probably like, Dave, just like nodding, being like, oh, my God, you're seeing into my soul. Right. I mean, <laughs> like, because that started for me when I was a little girl of like, I can't rely on these tall people in my house to emotionally support me or show up for me. Like, they do not have the skills or the tools or the time. And so th- it's on me. And it is not re- didn't really feel particularly smart or safe to ask them to show up for me. So I'm fine. No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, don't worry about it. I'm cool. See, that's another thing that I feel like we all often talk about in terms of uh, support systems, right? And that as women, as girls, we are socialized to be the support system, whereas men are socialized to seek support systems. And, have, you know, they have moms and, and secretaries and wives. And so, you know, a lot of the time that uh, that we, I don't know if I, I'm going to butcher this, but you were like, your well-being is my responsibility, right? Like, I think that's deeply inherent in our socialization. A story I've shared before on the podcast, which always, you know, I can laugh about now because we've been together for 22 years. But when I when I knew that my I was like really in love with my husband on his birthday, I wrote him this like really, really sappy note breaking up with him because I knew that I was like, I'm in really deep with this person. And eventually, at some point, he's going to see the real me and he's going to dump me and he's going to break my heart. Right. And so I was convinced I needed to like get out before I was hurt because I was so attached to him. And so I tried to dump him. And thankfully he was like, what are you doing? It's my birthday. You're we're not breaking up. <laughs> and he wouldn't like, he wouldn't accept it. And he sort of saw through that dramatic flair of mine. But I think it speaks to what we were, t- what we're talking about of that feeling of like, I don't know if I have the energy to keep this up for my whole life, <laughs> or I'm going to be so heartbroken when you finally eventually discover the real me and dump me, right? And this idea that we always have this like version, like we always think that we need to be in control or that it is our responsibility to make other people like us. It's our responsibility to make other people comfortable. And I'm like, where is that coming from? Is that is that just being female? Is there, you know, is that just, is or is that a neurodivergent thing or is it all of the above? I feel like, okay, Generally speaking, I feel like everything is all of the above, like just to like say that <laughs> plainly. Yeah, I think it's it's growing up AFAB in the patriarchy is like a really solid place to look for that. And then our parents were boomers, right? Or the silent generation. So our moms were also taught this, but even more hardcore than us and their moms and their moms and their – so it's this multi-generational mother wound right, that is created by the patriarchy and keeps us at odds with what the possibility of being a woman really can be. And it becomes this really limited framework, right, where exactly what you were saying, where everyone's guardian, everyone's caretaker, everyone's gatekeeper, and never fully showing up for ourselves. Because like, who's got the time or the energy Well, and I feel like it's such a leap of faith too, right? When it comes to boundaries. And I think that's one of the things I work on with my clients a lot, which is like, you just have to trust that if you put yourself first and you say no, it's going to manifest the life you've been trying to get this whole time (laughs) by putting yourself out there and being everything for everyone and burning yourself out. But it's a real leap of faith. I don't know how you deal with their, I don't know how you kind of coach your clients out of that mentality of emotional outsourcing. Mindset doesn't come in for quite a while for me. So we start with the body. We start with somatics. And we start with really learning to map the nervous system every single stage of interactions, right? So your partner asks you to do a thing. Where's your nervous system, right? What state is your nervous system in? What are you experiencing somatically, right? Are you in a little bit of adrenaline? Do you feel that edge, right? Because we've already done work where we've gone into sympathetic and felt what that feels like in a safe container and come back to ventral and gone into dorsal, the retreat, check out, disconnected part of the nervous system and come back to ventral. We've done that. We've mapped that, right? So now we bring it to real life. They ask you to do something. Does your breath catch a little bit? Does your diaphragm now have to hold your spine up? Because you're 
breath is up here because you went a little sympathetic and you're leaving yourself. Okay, great, perfect, beautiful, mapped it. We've got it. Now let's bring you back to self into ventral vagal, right? We use a tool from Strozzi. What does it feel like to be centered in your height, in your width, in your depth in that moment when something is being asked of you? What does it feel like somatically to be present and centered and grounded in every dimension of you? And from there, how can you source safety for yourself from yourself first? And then because we're not out here for more rugged individualism, we're not out here for more siloed healing, how can you co-regulate your nervous system if that is possible? Can you turn to your partner and share what's real? Right? And if you can't yet, that's cool. We'll get there. First, we source safety within, in the body, then the mind. And then we attempt to co-regulate where possible. And so sometimes if that's not talking to your partner, is there a plant around you can talk to? Is there a pet around? Is there a children whose little tiny head you can smell? Right? Whose weight can support you? Is there a chihuahua? Because there's a grumpy one at my feet wearing diapers. And he's a bastard and I love him. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? So how can you source and resource what you need to feel as safe as possible so you can ask not your mind, but your body, what the next right step is for you. I love that. Yeah. It's a pretty rad process because it really, after, you know, when was Descartes, right? Like we've kind of, <laughs> this mind-body dualism has been around for a hot minute. And so it really returns primacy to the body in a world where cognition has become everything much to our I don't know. I don't think it's I don't think it's much good for us, says an incredibly overeducated woman. <laughs> well, and I think that that is one of the unwitting side effects of a diagnosis, even though it's funny because, you know, and I talk a lot about how one of the things that's so amazing about a diagnosis of ADHD or a diagnosis of autism in adulthood is the fact that we don't view it as pathological at all. Right. This is such clarity. There's so much information. And so it really does kind of flip the script with a lot of this stuff. And so once we start paying attention and paying attention is not something we've been historically very good at because we're in a constant state of overwhelm. So it's like, once you get to a point where you can start paying attention again, then you start listening to your intuition. You start listening to your gut. You start saying, this is not, this doesn't serve me, or this is what I want to go after. Right. And, and then your intuition becomes so much stronger when it comes to so many people and jobs and decisions. Right. It's just like this, suddenly this tool that you never had before in your toolbox becomes so much more louder and sharper or whatever tool metaphor, but you know, it's so wonderful to watch that grow and, you know, where you're not expecting it from an ADHD diagnosis. Cause most people are like, Oh, I finally know what's wrong with me. <laughs> you're like, no, you finally figured out what's right. Right. What your superpower and your magical messes is, is. <laughs> yeah. But I find that with ADHD, like I have to be very careful when I'm asking clients to pay attention because paying attention is, you know, something that can be really difficult in the beginning. So I love how you kind of walked through those just those literal baby steps uh, with the baby sniffing because it's really just like slowing down and I don't know I lost my just train of thought but yeah it was it was really lovely listening to you because I think that's there's something very intentional about having to slow down and I think it's something that we don't you know where we are not necessarily very good at at the beginning of our diagnoses yeah absolutely and it really is where so much of our power lies right? Because when we slow down, we notice the nuance. And when we slow down, we invite ourselves to step into responsiveness from habitual reactivity. And we invite ourselves to make really conscious, intentional choices about ourselves, our lives, and, and the next moment, right? The next breath, the next word out of our mouths. And so my passion for somatics is really, a number one, a deeply feminist one, um, B number two, the science is dope, but, um, it's really about choicefulness, right? It's really about agency because when I can map my nervous system, I know what I am likely to do on autopilot next. And then I get to choose and decide, like, do I want to do that thing? Do I want to throw this plate? 
Do I want to scream at that dog? Do I want to slam this door? Do I want to storm out of here? Do I want to retreat into myself and say, I am a rock, I am an island, and I won't let you in? Right? What do I actually want to do? And not what does the default mode want to do? Because the default mode, generally speaking, sucks. <laughs> like, for, right? For most of us, the default mode is not cute. It does not feel good. The outcomes are um, on a scale of somewhere between lousy and terrible. There are seven. And so Maddox gives us an opportunity to say, like, hold up, wait a second. I don't want to repeat the thing that I've always done the way I've always done it. I don't want to react in that codependent way. I don't want to people please. I want to pause and me please for a second right? I want to set this healthy boundary because healthy boundaries are resentment prevention. Whereas living from obligation is, that is just inviting in so much resentment, so much upset, so much discord and strife that is just, and suffering that is frankly unnecessary. That's the thing. Emotional outsourcing creates unnecessary suffering. It is the Buddha's second arrow every 12 to 13 seconds. Wow. I just wrote that. Healthy boundaries are resentment prevention. I got to tattoo that. Well, I feel like that's also the case too, when we talk about um, like accommodations, right? Like I talk, when we talk about accommodations at work, there's always that fear that if I ask for what I need, I am somehow trying to get away with something, right? Or, you know, that I'm going to be trying to get special treatment. It's like, no, you're actually you're looking for ways that you can show up as the best version of yourself. Like your boss, your whoever it is that you're talking to your partner, like these are ways in which they would be supportive of that. Like, like you are saying, I want, I have seen something that will help me be a great version of myself. And so how can we have that support? And I'll also like another direction to go is, so what if you are asking for special treatment? Do you not deserve special treatment? This is when women come to me and they're like, oh, I don't want to like ask her my needs to be met because I don't want to be seen as selfish. I'm like, girl, what is wrong with selfish? The opposite is selfless, <laughs> right? You, you want to not have a self? That's what we've been trained up in. And how's that going so far? Like, how's that feeling? You have a very short time on this planet. You really want to spend it not having a self. Mm-hmm. Or not feeling special and not getting the special things that help you to feel special. I love giving people special treatment. <laughs> love it. Here for it. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's give everyone more special treatment so they can feel more selfish. That's a revolution right there. I know, right? My grandmother is rolling in her grave, though. Because I think that there was such this sense of like worth through martyrdom, which like you said, save your martyr saint, right? Where I'm like, I just love the way that you're just like, where did that get you? Right? Like, let's think about how that's been serving us. How so we far. live in? How are we living? <laughs> how are we living from martyr? Does that feel good? What are your anxiety levels? How fulfilled are you? What is your sense of self? I know, right? Yeah, yeah. And how are you making everyone else feel? So God, my ex's mother was like, oh, Lisa was like the most profound case of of savior, saint, fixer, martyrdom. And I remember every holiday meal, she would like run herself ragged to make it completely perfect and have the table perfect. And, you know, and she'd be like, we'd all sit down to dinner and she'd like be a mess still. And like, really pointedly letting us know. That's the thing, right? Because the martyr, the flip side of it is of that long suffering is everyone around you suffers a long time. And so it was very clear to us just how much she'd been suffering and that she could like not even sit down, right? So all we wanted was like chicken nuggets and to hang out with her, you know, or like skip the chicken nuggets. Fine, just hang out. But that martyrdom creates this maelstrom of proving that means Everyone has a crappy time, right? So it's like when we think our suffering creates something nice for others, that is such a sentinel sign of slow down, pause, check yourself in advance of wrecking yourself. Oh my goodness. Like you said, I think 
it is absolutely essential to bring in support where you can find it because it's not something you're going to figure out. It's not something you should have to figure out on your own. And I think that comes back to that idea of like, uh, we feel a lot of pressure to figure things out on our own instead of asking for help. I think that's kind of like you were talking about before, like pull it, that pulling away, right? Which is like distancing ourselves from support even. Oh my God. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Thank you. <laughs> so, so now you have, you have a workshop, right? A 90 minute workshop on polyvagal and the nervous system. Yeah, it's a good time. All of my workshops. I then, I also have a, a three month program called the somatic studio, which is all about somatics and our nervous system and, and reclaiming our agency through somatics. And my six month program is a deep dive into thought work, somatics, breath work, and emotional outsourcing. So a real focus on that with this really beautiful community. It's gorgeous. That's called Anchored. So, so it's called Anchored Overcoming Codependency. Yeah. And I am like, do your clients come to you knowing that they are codependent or is that <laughs> something like, I, or because I feel like that is, in itself is a, is a major cognitive step before even getting help. Right. So I'm like, where, where are your clients usually at when they come to you? Yeah, most of them, most folks like a therapist or a dear friend, someone was like, hey, girl, hey, <laughs> someone's got to let you know that you, you got the co. Once again, like it's an STI. You got the co. You've got it. You got it. I had the clap last year. Don't be embarrassed. You've got the co. And um, your mama's got it too. So... Um, yeah, most folks were let know, sometimes gently, sometimes not, that like emotional outsourcing is probably part of your picture. Um, a lot of people uh, come to Feminist Wellness, my podcast, from their therapists. Isn't that fun? Uh, no, I, it's great. I feel like that's a lot of my listeners actually come to this podcast from their therapist recommended it, which I'm like, awesome. I know. I feel so honored when that happens. I'm like, oh, gee, oh, thanks. So, yeah, most people sort of have this inkling. What's really cute, you know, folks, it's a program you anchored, you applied to, and uh, we always have a conversation because the safety of the container is really important to me and making sure it's the right energetic blend. And we're together for six months. Like, I take it very, who's in the program very, very seriously. So I meet with folks first. And um, what's really cute to me is when people are like, I just don't know if I'm codependent enough to be in the program. Like, what do you think? Do you think I'm codependent <laughs> enough? And I'm like, oh, sweet baby teddy bear. Listen, uh, we start on Thursday and um, let's get you let's get you signed up there. Okay. Yeah. Do I think you're codependent enough? Do you want to prove it to me? Uh, I'm going to need references from your last three dates. <laughs> That's going to work out well. No, but it's very sweet. It's very sweet. It's it's a wonderful, good time. But people sort of come to see even deeper levels of their own codependent thinking as we move through the course. Like it's constantly in the, in the online community. It's like this constant module four felt like a complete attack on my personhood. It was right. <laughs> like, damn it. I didn't know I did that. Oops. So... It's fun. Oh my god, I love it. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I would say the feminist wellness podcast is a great place to start in terms of just getting to know you and your amazing philosophy and approaches and all of the kind of holistic value you bring to so many topics. It's uh, it's an amazing resource. So thank you for that. You've been doing that for longer than I. You've been doing that since 2019, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's who. What is time? Yeah. <laughs> Oof. Right? I know. I know. I've like 220 episodes. Two t- Next week is 222, which is wild. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. I survived. Yeah. 222 episodes. Wow. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I'm not there yet. I'm only in the 130s right now, but I'm like, it's such a blast. Like people always are like, how are, they're like, how are you still doing this? Don't you have ADHD? Why do you still have a podcast? And I'm like, it is the most fun I've ever had. Like it's, it's so fun. I mean, there's all the other stuff like the editing and putting it out there. That's kind of gets tedious, but this right here, the conversations like, oh my God, that's, it feeds me so much. I don't know when I'll ever get tired of that, but yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I love to ask my guests if you could rename ADHD to something else. Would you give it another name? Did you think about that? 
Francine. No, just kidding. <laughs> Margaret. Um, so here's the thing about my ADHD. I don't actually read questions before interviews because then I'll like micro focus. Right. I'm always surprised that people do because I'm always like, I never come up with one. Right. <laughs> never. No. Oh, my. That is a terrible option for my brain. Give no. Because then I'll pre-write a paragraph or 12. So anyway, so what would I rename ADHD? I mean, there's a whole vast thing that's already a thing. Yeah. My problem with vast, I mean, I think it's great, but I, I don't like the fact that it's just, you can't Google it, right? Because I feel like so much about ADHD is, I think I have ADHD, and then you Google it, and then you fall down the rabbit hole, and then you're, you know, you're hyper-focused on researching, and your whole life flashes before your eyes. So I'm like, vast is great, but it's you still have to Google ADHD. Like you'll never just be able to Google that. So that's my only complaint about it. But I think it's a good stab. Yeah. Maybe it'll take off though. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I definitely like getting rid of the term disorder. Yeah. Yeah. And the like concept of hyperactivity. Right. William Dodson, who um, is a psychologist and expert on ADHD, he calls it hyper arousal. That's what he said. Instead of hyperactivity, he calls it hyper arousal. And I love that phrase because I'm like, I feel like that speaks to so much of the emotional default mode stuff, right? That's hyper arousal. So yeah, I kind of like that term. I like that. Yeah, it gives it a, a broader, it, it also creates more of a spectrum around it versus it being like the one thing kind of vibe. Yeah, right. And that's the other thing I think I often complain about is that it's this sort of it's diagnosed based on its deficiency, based on the deficiencies, whereas something like where autism is just, you know, much more person first and it's much more of an identity. And so I'm like, why? I think that's why so many of us embrace neurodivergence as opposed to ADHD, because it's really sort of, you know, it's not something you catch at a party. <laughs> Who knows how we got it? I don't know. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. I don't, we, I feel like I'm like, how am I going to put a headline? This is my hardest thing is how do I put a title on these episodes? Cause I'm like, what didn't we talk about? Um, but so in addition to the feminist wellness podcast, which I will have a link to what, uh, how can people reach you and how can they find you and work with you? Yeah. So you can follow me on the gram. I give good gram at Victoria Albino wellness. It's true. I give good gram. And I have a special treat for your listeners. This special treat is if you head over to victoriaalbino.com slash women and ADHD, and we wrote it all out, A-N-D. There's a set of meditations, uh, nervous system orienting exercises, and other delights just for your listeners for free, victoriaalbino.com slash women and ADHD. You can just go download it. Is that fun? Oh, that's Awesome. I will definitely have that link in the show notes. And just even just listening to your voice today, I'm like, God, I, I wish I had meditation recordings of you. <laughs> and now you do. <laughs> My meditation teacher voice is a little more like this. <laughs> and then there's my NPR voice. Um, I know, right? I, I feel like yeah, I, I, you could, you slip back and forth in your podcast too. Uh, I do, today. I do. It's so funny. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm in an NPR voice. Yeah, and then that slam poet voice from the '90s. That's like a whole. That's a whole mood. Before there was vocal fry, there was slam poet voice. <laughs> this is super fun. You did not disappoint. You give good pod. I'm so glad. <laughs> Perfect. Because my value depends on you liking me. <laughs> Wait a second. Shoot. I better go and roll an anchor. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Good times. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. There you have it. Thank you for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. 
please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year! That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time-boxing, single-tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.